Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. I'm excited to introduce our accomplished expert in this episode, former U.S. speed skier, mountaineer, and climber, Craig Kalanika. Craig is a world-renowned adventurer who has great insight on risk and leadership. He has four decades of experience navigating daring and dangerous ascents and descents in some of the most extreme alpine locations in the world, creating and breaking records in the process. He currently runs a cutting-edge helicopter skiing operation in the Himalayas and is originally from Lake Tahoe, California. I connected with Craig in the summer of 2021 and was fortunate that he regaled me with stories of some of his incredible high-altitude experiences. We hope to have him back on the podcast in the future to unpack his philosophies on navigating risk and building resilience. But for now, we're honored to share his powerful accounts of adventuring in complex outdoor environments that showcase extraordinary aspects of human endurance and the human spirit. I live in Chamonix, uh, France, which is this village directly below Mont Blanc. And uh, it's beautiful here. It's live right below the glacier. I, I've never not lived in a ski area, really. I lived down in San Diego for a while once, but I've always lived in the mountains and in skiers. I'm from Lake Tahoe and I raced internationally for 15 years and been climbing and skiing in the Himalaya and all over the world the whole time. So it was kind of uh, unusual not to be in the mountains. I did all the regular sports, baseball, football, all that stuff in school. And I was skiing. And I actually got into ski racing somewhat late. But it, did, it was not a hindrance. Um, it actually was to my benefit because I learned how to ski before I raced, where a lot of the mm-hmm. younger kids make the mistake and they try to race before they learn how to ski. So as soon as I started racing, I went straight. At that time, they started out as a D and they went to C, B, A. And work, you worked your way up. I won every single race all the way to my first A race, and I won that. So I just accelerated. It's just like an explosion. And then that was it. Uh, I was one of the stronger skiers in the Western United States, uh, pretty much within the second year of starting a ski race. And that's when I met Steve McKinney, and we were racing uh, together in these regional races it's the far west ski division and when we were both the same age and when we graduated high school we moved he was skiing out of mount rose and i was skiing out of heavenly valley and so we moved to squaw valley they had a really good race program there and got a house together with his brother mclean who who was just a phenomena and this uh, one sister, Weisha, she wasn't really racing, but she was staying there. And then two friends of mine from Heavenly Valley. And 
at that time, we weren't climbing. We, we didn't even have it in our minds. And we met two of the ski patrol that were wound up being two of the best big wall climbers in the world. And they were in Yosemite, but they were ski patrol at Squaw Valley. So they started tagging along with us when we were out free skiing, when we weren't race training, running gates. We'd go out free skiing and these guys would, you know, actually I remember Bridwell, the first time I met him, was Jim Bridwell and Kim Schmitz, both legendary big wall climbers and climbers in general. They're world-renowned. And Bridwell was following me down the west face at KT and I stopped and I go, what are you doing, man? And he goes, uh, I just like the way you ski. You, you don't mind if I ski with you, do you? <laughs> I was like, okay. And that's how it kind of began. And then uh, we somehow clicked. They were 10 years older than us, but that age played no role at all, actually. One of my best friends was Warren Harding, and he mm -hmm. was my parents' age. He was the first guy to climb El Cap. There's, I don't know what is, the connection is with age with climbing and skiing, but uh, you have all these age groups right. that mix together and all can connect and relate for some reason. So anyway, uh, after a winter of skiing with those guys, they decided to show us their appreciation of letting them ski with us and take us climbing. So off we went. They were tying the rope in for us. There was no harnesses then. This mm -hmm. was in 73. It was this bowling on a coil they just do this three wraps around your waist with the rope and do this little knot that connected them all and that was it so they were always leading we never led or put put anything in and stevie went to yosemite and came back all excited he's going craig 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 you know i i led a pitch and and i bought some equipment i bought a rope and some gear and all that so we can go off on our own and i went oh okay fine he goes so let's go now. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. Okay. All right. Uh, you're serious about this, are you? Okay, fine. So we, it was our first climb without Bridwell and Kim. I, I go, well, did you learn how to tie the, the knot? I mean, the bone on a coil for the harness? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that now. So here he is. He's tying me in. And we were, we were strong. We were climbing the hardest stuff out there, but we mm -hmm. didn't... Uh, know anything about the technique or putting in protection or setting up the belays nothing and we were doing a belay off our waist we didn't have these little fancy things that you have now these little belay plates or a grigri that didn't exist it was just off your waist <laughs> which you know is way different than those things <laughs> you're you're catching the whole thing on your back and your hands the other thing, you can lock it off, and then it goes off your harness. So anyway, Stevie leads the first pitch. It was oh, maybe 120 feet or so. And it ends on this sloping ledge about 12 feet square, but it's sloping downhill. So if you if you went sideways you can, and you just did one roll, you would just roll right off. It's sloping. It had a pretty good slope, but still flat enough to walk around on. And then you wouldn't see anything off the edge because you were back in this corner. And then he took off to lead the second pitch, and it, it kind of traverses off uh, to the right of your face in the wall, mm -hmm. to my left if I'm sitting against the wall in this corner where I was. 
and he quickly went out of sight. And I'm just feeding out the rope. And all of a sudden, I hear this big scream, Craig, Craig. And all of a sudden, what? And he just comes flying off out in space in front of me. And he lands on on the ledge in front of me. And it's still looking like he hit uh, granite. It looked like he hit a trampoline. He bounced about six feet in the air. And he's like, Phew. It just went flying off. I was like, oh, my God. And so I start pulling in the rope, trying to shorten the fall. And then all of a sudden, he came onto the rope. And everything he put in ripped out except this bolt that the first ascent party put in. And luckily, that caught because the next piece was what he put in for my anchor. And after seeing what happened, I'm not so sure he put it in right. But it, I caught him. Amazingly enough, I caught him. And he's groaning. He's going, let me down, let me down. He took a 100-foot fall. And I lowered him down. And I'm sitting there going, well, I don't, I, there was no more weight on the rope. And I was thinking, oh, I hope he's on the ground because I can't see anything from here. And then I, was, I had about 15 feet left. And Stevie quit making noise. He was groaning at first. So I didn't know if he's dead, what, or if he's on the ground or stuck on a ledge. I had no idea. And I was sitting there going, hmm, I know there's a thing called rappel, but I don't know how to do that yet. <laughs> they didn't show me how to do that yet. So I had 15 feet of rope left. I climbed down to all of a sudden where I had to untie. So I untied. The whole thing just went flying down on the wall. And I had to down climb the whole pitch. We went up with the rope tied in with protection with nothing and down climbing is twice as difficult as going up because you can't really see that well below you after what i just saw it was like <laughs> it was torment almost but somehow i breezed it uh, the the whole <laughs> thought of what happened just left my mind and i was just completely dialed into what i needed to do and i did and i got down Part of it was I was just really strong, and I was made. I didn't know it, but I was made for that stuff. I found that mm -hmm. out later, but I didn't know at that time that I had probably one of the best minds in the world for those type of situations. Mm. But I knew from my earlier days the one thing that I I was really good at was normally when everybody was scared shitless, I was having fun. That's yeah. I didn't have fun on the boring things. I only had fun when. It got really scary and everybody's freaking out and I'd be laughing and having a great time. So I, I was like that from the beginning, which mm -hmm. I found out later. My friends that I ended up doing these things with at that level were quite similar. But anyway, I get to the ground and I look over and CB did make it to the ground. I, I had enough rope for him to get there and he wasn't on a ledge with a heap on him, the rope and all this junk. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh God, and he's not moving, not saying anything. And I walk over and I give him a little shake of Stevie, Stevie, and like, oh, oh God, my back hurts really bad. And my elbow and my wrist and the palm of my hand. And I look at the palm of his hand and it looked like someone took a meat cleaver and just took a big hack out of it. There's this big giant gash across the whole palm of his hand. And I said, okay, well, I'll just cut the rope, break off some branches around here. There's this brush and stuff. And we'll make like a little splint and we'll try to walk out. And I did that. Kind of almost stood up and there was no way. It became immediately obvious that something was wrong with his back and he wasn't going to be able to walk out. The fact that I did that was a little bit stupid because um, 
it could have been really, it could have made it worse, right? I'll tell you the end result mm -hmm. when I finish the rest of this. So I'm like, okay, no mobile phones, no cell phones then, no 9-11, nothing. So I run down and I'm driving down the road to find a, a phone booth. And I find one about five miles down the road. And I'm thinking, who do I call? <laughs> There's no 911 yet. I'm an emergency uh, hospital. Yeah. Let's see. I just went, okay, I need something immediately. I'll just call an operator. So I dial O. I had to put in a quarter, right? <laughs> Luckily, I had a quarter. <laughs> and, or a dime. It was a dime then. And um, I, the operator answered, the operator, I'm going, uh, my friend just took a 100-foot fall climbing, and he's down at the base of the wall. Is there somebody that you might be able to call to help me out here? <laughs> she goes, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Where are you? <laughs> and she goes, well, here's the hospital emergency number. Try them. Oh, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> after about four or five calls, I finally got connected with this volunteer search and rescue guy right he goes oh yeah well i'll get a hold of old jim maybe we can cut up there about an hour or something i went oh god uh, well i mean he's in bad shape if you could come a little bit sooner that'd be good you know and yeah it was, it was a little bit unbelievable what was going on so they did show up about a half hour instead of an hour later and went up and they had like a little canvas handheld um, hammock type thing, rolled Stevie into it, and it was springtime. So there was like a foot and a half of snow on top of these 12 to 14 foot high fields of brush mm -hmm. that had been somewhat compressed. But now it was later in the day, so uh, when we came in, we were able to walk across it. But at this point, we were just falling through we just drop into these holes and nowhere it took forever to get back out it was a nightmare meanwhile trying to hold stevie up and keep him from getting dumped into one of these holes mm -hmm. it was a thrash it was, it, was mm -hmm. it wouldn't happen like it is today so we get him finally out of there to the hospital the results were he broke his back in three places shattered mm -hmm. his elbow shattered his wrist, and they got 64 stitches in the palm of his hand. <laughs> First climbing trip without brittle instruments, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> okay, this is a nice start. And uh, I went back the next day with a friend and did the climb again, saw what was what happened, and basically everything he put in pulled out. He, was, mm. he didn't have that figured out yet. And so uh, I got really into climbing it didn't uh deter me at all i just became fanatical about it mm -hmm. and i was on the rock sun up to sun down and the next spring i wound up doing my first l cap route but as stevie got out of the hospital he had this full body cast and he decided to go to trevina where the speed skiing races were being held and they start like the 20s fifth or so of june and go into the 12th 13th of july so he went there with this full body cast this he had the accident near the end of may so a little more than maybe around a month 
before he was about out there with his skis on and went up there and watched the race, comes back with all these magazines and stuff, and he's going, all right, right, this is what we got to do next. <laughs> ah, okay. Well, you know, I don't, I don't even like downhill that well. I don't know. Slalom just gear, you know. John Hill's okay, the technical ones. Goes, no, no, you have the right head for this. You'll be perfect. We got to do it. It's, it's going to be next June. So we got to start thinking about it. Start contacting the companies for the right skis and stuff. And I was like, okay. So now we'll go back to, we, we raced that winter on the amateur circuit, the Can-Ams and all that stuff. And uh, that spring, I got into climbing and I had this accelerated course. So I was going to do my first El Cap route with Bridwell, and he had something happen. I was going to do it with Calc. He had something happen. These were the best climbers in the world. Yeah. The and then all of a sudden, uh, this friend of mine, John Backer, who's also well-known, he was a soloist doing the wild stuff. A friend of his, a Norwegian friend, was on El Cap, and they were fixed. he was fixed up to Sickle Wedge, just about three pitches, four pitches up. His partner belled. So Backer goes, Craig, man, go with go with my friend Doug. He's is set up. He wants to continue. I'd never done the wall. I had never Jumart. I'd never aid climbed. And Doug had only did one small short route. So I met him at seven that night. And we were and there's Jumar in the fixed ropes, four in the morning. And we did the route in two and a half days and the fastest it was done. Mm-hmm. Before that was two days. Wow. The, everybody else was taking four to five days. But he was driving me crazy. It was just kept talking. So I was leaving <laughs> these things really fast just to get out of there. He reminded me of Dega from Papillon. He had this little cap that he had the knots on, you know, like the scarf cap. And I was like, would you just shut up? <laughs> so anyway... Got up, did the route, went down, and I met up with one of my friends, Mike Graham, who started this company. He started making portal ledges, but it's made became well known for his clothing line called Gramichi. Anyway, it was Patagonia level type clothing mm-hmm. and stuff, but early days before Patagonia. And he was on this rescue in Camp Four. And he's going, good job, man, because I was going out climbing with him and Calc and Backer and Bridwell. When we would show up, they'd take us out. I was that's so cool you did that. I can't believe it, how fast you did that. And you hadn't even done a wall yet. And I go, not only that, I never ate climbed a Jumar before. He goes, oh, my God. If, if you had done that before, you would have just blown the record away by at least a day. Because when you figure this out, <laughs> look out, right? So we grab a six-pack of beer. We get out of the car, and a friend of ours comes running out of the woods. You guys, you guys, just Chris just grounded out. So normally on El Cap routes, we'll climb two or three pitches at least and fix the rope. And then in the meantime, we're going up and preparing that. We're hauling up all the food and water because it's heavy. I mean, you have to bring a gallon and a half a day for, for two people. So if you're up there seven days, it's a lot, right? And then, of course, we need at least one or two beers a day for at night. And all the foods are canned foods. Just everything winds up being heavy, really heavy. So you're humping all that stuff up while you're going up and fixing pitches. And then when you're ready to blast off, one guy jumars up the ropes. Another guy's sitting down the, 
the bottom, getting the haul bags set up and ready to go. And then the guy starts hauling up the bags. And then the other guy starts jumaring up the other line. So Chris was jumaring up, and he's about 200 feet off the off the ground. And the rope was on the going across this sharp edge. And uh, it cut. He was right to where it happened. We could tell that he was trying to clip around the cut, and it cut right in front of his eyes. Mm-hmm. And we went, anyway, I went, we went running up to try to see what we could do. And we got there, and he was dead. I was like, mm-hmm. uh. So my, my introduction to climbing was a little bit harsh, you might say. Still, didn't do me at all. I just, I ended up doing over 28 routes up there. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and then this one, um, it was a new route Bridwell and I were doing. It wound up being the hardest big wall route ever done in the world at that time. You start out, uh, the first 500 feet, we were we were fixing these, I mean, going up and down these ropes because uh, it was just, it was taking two, three days to lead one pitch. You were, you were going to fall 300 feet on any one of these pitches we were leading, right? Because mm-hmm. you fall double the length. Everything we were putting in wouldn't hold the fall. It was just going to uh, support you to make one more move up higher. And it was the level of that kind of climbing. So <laughs> you're going up and down these lines when you, at this one point, we touched the wall about 300 feet above the ground and then never touched the wall again from that point until you hit the ground. So at the furthest point away, you're about 110 feet away from the wall because it's really overhanging. And I could see where Chris landed the whole time. Mm. So when you're rappelling down, that's one thing. You know, you're going down pretty quick. But when you're G-marring up on these overhanging lines like that out in space, it's slow. It's slow going. And you're spinning around the circles and the wind's coming up and it's blowing you back and forth. And and I'm just sitting there looking at this spot. I had a lot of time to think about where Chris, that that was where he was mm-hmm. landed, right? I was like, oh, mm-hmm. God. Didn't make me feel that great. But again, I was one of my gifts is being able to blank that stuff out and focus on what I needed to do, which is uh, what I did. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking to me. Mm-hmm. And that's been like that my entire life. The same mm-hmm. thing happened on my first climb in the Himalaya. And it was on that climb on the Everest Grand Circle. And I actually wasn't part of the team at first because Kim was uh, on that team. It was Bidwell, Stevie, mm-hmm. Kim, Ned Gillette, Jen Reynolds. And Kim was on an expedition in China, and he was coming in late. And all of a sudden, when he he, he got sick or something, he didn't want to go. So I took his place. Mm-hmm. And I came in, like, they'd already been there about three weeks. And I came in, and they already failed trying to go up there once. And there was this one section where you had to cross, humping some more supplies up to this high spot. Not far from the summit. And there there was this big wall above us, probably about a 2,000, 3,000 foot base. And then it came off of this like ski jump hill type ramp. And there's this space below this on the glacier that we were crossing. And then below that, like a 500 foot wall. And 
every time I cross that for five days straight, these TV-sized boulders or rocks came flying off. Only me. And they'd be mm. going straight at me. Mm. No rope, no nothing. And these things are going Mach 1. I mean, they're free fall. Luckily, I grew up playing baseball. I'd just sit there. I'd watch these things. I could, I could hear them coming. I'd go, oh, God, here that comes again. And just whoo, go flying right. And I'd dodge. I'd duck down. I had an ice axe in my hand. I'd dive down and just flying right over my head. I just go, God. And these guys were looking at me and going, what's going on? Man? Why are you being chosen? I, I don't know. Strange, you know, it's a really weird thing. But I had mm -hmm. the same thing happen when I started rock climbing. <laughs> Somewhat. A little bit different, but it was definitely, uh, uh, there was there was like, a, like okay, you want to come here and play? This is what you're going to be dealing with. It was telling me loud and clear what I was, what's going on there, right? And so the fifth day I was going across and we find that we had these new harnesses and, and Jimmy gave us, he goes, here, try this one. Now this is a pretty good one. And it had these little D-ring D type loops, but I didn't know you had to leak, loop it back through. So I just went through once and the whole thing came undone right in the middle of that one spot where, all the, where I was dodging the rocks and it dropped down to my ankles. I go, oh shit. And I'm sitting there struggling with this thing and the next thing I know I heard this huge rumble about 30 of these things were coming down and they just uh, watched them launch off the wall and there was no dodging. I just had to dive down, put my pack above my body and kind of, you know, sink in my ice axe and hope I wasn't going to get hit. And it was just flying and bouncing all around me. It's like, oh, God. And it didn't hit me. <laughs> and that was the last time that I had to deal with those things. And we went out, did it, and then after that, that was the first winter ascent via new route in the history of Himalayan climbing, which mm -hmm. was, we didn't know. And then we, Jimmy left, Stevie left before that, and Ned, Jan, and I went over these three 20,000-foot passes afterwards. And it was, it's different going over these passes like that than it is doing a climb. Because the climb, you're going up and down, you know the route, you, can, you know where you came from, where you're going. When we went over the first pass, there was like 20 different things could have been the next pass, right? And this was in the winter. Sherpas weren't, they were, the llamas wouldn't allow the Sherpas to go on the climbs. So all this climbing we did on our own, there was no Sherpa support. They could only go to base camp. So we went, which is how we always climbed anyway. I, I was I was shocked that Sherpas were actually hauling stuff for you and fixing ropes. And I was like, uh, well, that that I started seeing later. I was going, what's the point in that? You're not climbing, mm. right? But anyway, don't worry about that because I never did climb that way. But they came with us to the pass. There was one group that tried to do it once in the winter. And one of the people died right away as a Sherpa. It's one of their friends, actually. And they didn't carry him out. They just put a, piled a bunch of rocks on him. You could still see him, his boots, his clothes, his head. And, was, and the Sherpas, it was like some African Tarzan movie where they were going through the jungle. And all the all the porters just went, what, what? And they saw something that spooked them. They dropped everything oh. and running off, right? It was one of those things. Mm -hmm. And I was like going, hey, wait, wait, where are you guys going? They go, oh, this is bad juju, bad juju. Go away, go away, don't go there. 
And I'm going, he's dead. He's not going to hurt you. No, 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 no. Go away. Bad, bad. We have to go. <laughs> okay, fine. And they were going to meet us at the base camp. We were going over these three 20,000-foot passes and meet us at the Makalu base camp, right? And then we mm-hmm. were going to go up on the glacier and ski to the border, to the Tibetan border, because that was the whole idea was to be skiing. And unfortunately, uh, what those guys didn't know, I didn't know, was in the winter in Nepal, especially the Everest region, it doesn't snow. It's really dry. It only snows in the west where we heli-ski at. Anyway, we go over the first pass. I go, that's the first pass. That's what you have to go up over. And I was leading. I was leading everything. I was way stronger than Ned. In fact, he he didn't lead anything, and, I, and Jan couldn't lead anything either. So I'm leading with one ice axe. I got a probably 70 pound pack on my back, and I had my ski poles, which were sticking out like antennas. And I'm on this like. 75, 80 degrees hard snow face. And I'm just running up this thing. And Ned decided it was a bright idea to go faster. He would just tie in about 30 feet behind me, right, and climb with me. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know, man. There's Jan doesn't have, the only thing she had to blaze was this little thing about the size of your hand if you closed your, tried to close it in length. A, a rock stuck in the ice. That's what I tied off on. That's all she had. There was no anchor, basically. And I had one ice screw. That was it. And so I ran up this thing, and I got to the top, and there's this massive cornice that I ended up having to chop a hole through to get up and over. And this uh, unbelievable. I was sitting there chopping for what's seemed forever but you're on your front point so your calves are just getting torched Mm -hmm. right i mean completely and i've got my hand above my head i'm chopping away and ned's sitting down there and all this stuff's falling on him and down on jan finally i make it through there and i start to step up and go into move and the one ski pole poked into the top the bottom part of the the cornice and I almost went flying off backwards, mm. and I was going to take about a 600-foot screamer down this massive face. But, of course, ripped everybody else off with me. But I caught myself. I thought, It's just one of those moments of, like, uh, okay, and regained my balance and got through and pulled myself up and over, pulled, and then belayed Ned and Jam out, and then we were... It was getting towards the end of the day. We went down below, set up our tents, and looked out. Got up in the morning, just looked and went, "Wow, which one of these things are the pass? The next pass? We had to go over mm. three of them." And we started. We we finally made a decision that it must be this one. And we start walking. And Ned, one thing he was good with was maps. He goes, mm. "Oh, we're losing elevation." And he had an altimeter. He goes. We're not supposed to be losing any elevation. We should be gaining. I went, okay, well, that's not good. That means we got to go that way. And we just blew out, blew yeah. about four hours. So backtrack. It was good we did it because we did find the right place. But it was, it's, the point I was trying to make was this, it's not like climbing. You know the route that you're climbing on. You're going up and down it, or you can scope it from the ground up. Here, we were on our own. 
We'd never been in there before. We didn't know what the passes looked like. We didn't know where we were. Nothing, no GPS, just this funky map. And so I ran up that face pretty quick. This time I didn't have Ned follow me because it was just the time saved created a much higher risk. The risk wasn't worth it. But I was fast. I didn't put anything in. I just ran it out. I was running, uh, climbing 100 foot section, 160 foot sections with nothing in at all. This big old pack. So I got us up and over that pretty fast. And then we're on this big giant glacier, this huge desert plateau type thing, but at 20,000 feet of ice with just on this big giant glacier. And looking, oh, wow. We, we spent the night there, but I, I could see, I mean, there was nothing. There was no pass. It was all just flat. Thinking, well, somewhere here out there, we, we go off. That's the pass, obviously, even though there's no, no notch, no nothing, right? So we start out the next morning, and it's pretty windy. And I remember getting on my belly and crawling <laughs> that's me. now i'm on my belly crawling over the edge of this massive cornice that was probably 70 foot thick cornice and then just this five thousand foot drop <laughs> wow. just this wind blowing straight up i could have jumped off the thing and probably would have held me up in the air with that <laughs> parachute is just howling and I was like well that's and I peek over oh that's that's not gonna work <laughs> I look down and maybe I'll go over there and again there's nothing to go by so I looked again probably about the fourth time I finally saw a place that we could get down on and then walk out of there down to the base camp area so which was a bit of a thrash we got through that it was scrambling but if you fell in any of those areas up high you were going to take a big screamer and we had no sat phones no communications with outside world the sherpas weren't allowed to go in these areas so we were we were on our own and this is this is real climbing this is real adventure it was like you screw up here and nobody's going to ever find you so that that I love that kind of thing. I, I I can't imagine doing going there with thousand people all going on the same route at the same time and calling that climbing. But you know, I guess everything is everybody has their own idea of what that is. But for me, it's it would never work. Anyway, so we get down to the base camp area at Makalu, and our Sherpas aren't there, and I'm thinking, hmm. This isn't good. We don't have any food left. We only brought enough food for that section of the trip. We still have a little bit of tea, maybe some, I think one or two pouches or servings of oatmeal. That was all. And we met this, we were going down and we met this crazy French climber who's trying to solo the French Southeast weird John Makalu. And we ask him, hey, have you, have you seen any Sherpas around here? He goes, oh, no, no. Why? I go, well, they're supposed to show up and our food and supplies. And he goes, oh, yeah, it's been bad weather. They probably are late. And I go, oh, all right, well, you didn't have any extra food. <laughs> he didn't. He, uh, he was almost out himself. He goes, 
but it's okay. You can get out. You just walk down this valley, and you're going to see a frozen river going up on the right after you know, a day or two of walking, and you follow that up, and you're going to go up to the pass, and then back over that downside, you'll start seeing some villages. Well, this this little th jaunt that he's talking about was a six-day jaunt, <laughs> six, seven-day jaunt, right? <laughs> and without food. So, uh, and then Ned goes, oh, yeah, well, to save weight, I didn't bring the map uh, how to get out of here. I only have the one, the base cap. I'm like, oh, good. Okay. To save weight. <laughs> yeah. So here we have no food and now no map. And, and the, out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere. And I'm like, amazing. There's nobody out. The, the French guy, but he was nuts and he was staying up there to do this climb. So we start going along and now it starts to snow. We were lucky it didn't snow when we were going over the passes because we would have never got out of there. No way. We would have disappeared and maybe been found in a thousand years from now somewhere. But, yeah, we got really lucky in that regard. But now it was starting to snow really hard, and we were, I was still way stronger than Ed and Jan, so I was running out two, three hours ahead looking for any kind of markings for the trail, maybe a chop in the tree or some old something, an old path that somebody walked through and it didn't get buried, any kind of sign, which I did do for the next three days. I was just going back and forth like a bird dog look, looking for any kind of sign to show that uh, there was a trail and pretty basic. I mean, we were going following this river and looking for this thing, but uh, if you didn't go in the right places, you could get stuck and have to walk back for a few hours. So I was trying to avoid any of those mistakes. And in the meantime, I'd run back and find them and go, okay, this is where we have to go. And we got to the finally to this uh, frozen river he talked about. Still no Sherpas, right? And I thought, well, that, there's a frozen creek here. I, I don't know if this is what he's talking about, but there's also a little cave here. And we can build a fire and try to dry out some of our stuff. I mean, we were everything was just drenched. So the next day, we went up, and Jan had went into convulsions about halfway up. She seized up. Uh, Ned, they were actually a couple. He's freaking out about her, saying, "We got to stop. We got to stop. We're pushing too hard." I went, "Well, you know, we don't have any choice. We have to go. I'll, I'll carry her pack. I'll carry her if I have to. We can't stay here. Uh, the option—that's not an option." So we let her rest for a while. We went up, wound up going down into this little lake, which was now frozen and buried in snow. And Ned wanted to stay there, but I could tell a storm was coming in. I said, no way. You know, well, this is a full-on bowling alley for avalanches. I'm not staying here. Mm -hmm. I go, if we get up to this ridge, I'm sure we're going to see a village down there. We have to do it. So I took, I was carrying everything, basically. Ned was dead at that time as well. So I was putting all the weight, plus breaking trail, waist-deep, sometimes chest-deep snow for another four hours up to the top of this ridge. And I got up there and just looked down and I saw this smoke coming up from this village. And I was like, wow, there it is. We found a village, we're good. 
and they got finally got up to me and go, okay, there it is, you guys. I was right. And they go, oh, my God, that's great. So we, we've still had one cylinder of gas, luckily, so mm-hmm. we can melt snow. And we were using, like, tea bags for the last four days, the same ones, just to pretend like we had something flavorful. <laughs> and we were just about ready to... We just woke up, about ready to start stirring around, and all of a sudden I heard some some noise, and zoot, our tent, uh, little our tent will open, zipped open, and there was one of our shirts going, "Hey, there you are!" And I go, "Where have you guys been?" And they were, they were. That was this was the sixth day. Now we we're out with, wow. out there with no food, no nothing. Wow. And uh, I go, "Where have you guys been?" They go, "Well, of a storm, and we couldn't fly into the airport." And then when we got there, none of the porters would help us bring carry stuff in because it's bad juju to be in the mountains in the winter. No one would come. It's like, oh God. So anyway, it was great. We had it was great. We we had a feast, right? (laughs) We looked like we just got out of Dachau. We were just down to skin and bone. And uh, so yeah, that was the, the first trip to the Himalaya. And now is uh, this year was my 40th year, <laughs> and I did a lot of first ascents, a lot of ascents. I tried to mm-hmm. ski over three times from the summit. All at this time, I was speed skiing full time for 15 years. I was in the top five and top ten the whole time. Right. The for my holiday, I do a climb in El Cap and a climb in the Himalaya. So for 15 years straight. I was burning the candle on both ends and people were dying like flies around me left and right um, all the way down to some of my best friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the one pushing the buttons on all of it. Some of them were just skiers. Some of them were alpine climbers climbing the Himalayas. Some were big wall climbers. Some were rock. I was doing all of it at the maximum level. It was, mm-hmm. there was no backing off. And, uh, but I was so strong. I was doing, 10 sets of 30 pull-ups off of quarter-inch door jams or, I mean, probably three, four hundred push-ups, thousand sit-ups. I was running 12 miles a day. I was a beast. So I was so strong that there wasn't anything I couldn't do. I mean, I could sit in one spot for hours comfortably where somebody could last for about five seconds. So that was part of my strength, but my overall strength was my head because mm. as, as you saw, anybody in their right mind would have quit climbing after the thing that happened with Stevie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that would have done it for most of the people. But uh, in my case, no. I mean, we went speed skiing uh, the first year. Somebody died right in front of us, and Stevie yeah. ended up setting a record first mm-hmm. race straight from the body cast. We were racing nationally that year, both straight to Trevenia, and he won, right? Set a mm-hmm. record. So we were together, we were a really strong force. And there was this, uh, he came up with this idea. He wanted to hang glide off of Everest. He went on a trip with uh, Kim and Galen Rounds and John Skelly on the north side of Everest. I wasn't on that one. One of the few climbs I didn't go on with him, I was doing something else. And he came back. He goes, I want to hang glide off of there. I went, oh. Yeah. 
all right, fine, you know. And so he and I put it together, the trip together. And right before we were leaving, we had three pilots. Stevie was one, Bobby Carter was another one, and this other friend of ours, Dan Racanelli, who was the world uh, record or was a world champion acrobatic hang glider pilot, right? Okay. And he was like two weeks before we were leaving, he was at a competition in Australia and his friend got caught in these high power lines. And Dan was uh, ran up to him. He's trying to calm the guy down because he was freaking out, right? Mm-hmm. And right then, a gust of wind came up and it hit Dan in the temple and fried him. Killed him dead. Boom, like that. Mm-hmm. So we wound up getting another pilot who had the record for uh, altitude and distance. He was, one of the be- he was the best in the world, actually. And he took uh, Dan's place, and Stevie took Dan's harness and just his actually Dan's mother asked if he would do that and he was going to fly with it Uh, so Dan would still get you know the spirit of him would still be there and so Stevie used his harness never flew with it before and I was up fixing these ropes I climatized really fast so I was already I went ahead with one of the other climbers who just got off a K2 and 13 people died, including one of his best friends. Mm -hmm. And he had to put him in a crevasse and left him. So Mm -hmm. he came on our expedition straight from that. And he was a little mentally tweaked, I could tell. And I didn't Mm -hmm. know him. He came Mm -hmm. from some other friend. And so I was there with him. And I had just the two of us. And we were fixing these ropes up to... 24,000 feet on the west ridge of Everest. It's the hardest route on Everest. And the hang gliders hadn't arrived yet, so they were waiting back for them to show up. Uh, that's a long story. I won't go into it, but it, it took them two weeks to get the hang gliders there, the Chinese. They wouldn't let us uh, take them with us on the flight. They drove mm. it across China. So I'm, I'm leading this pitch and I, I knew they were going to fly at base camp that day. And I had the radio on the top of my pack. And I hear on the radio, he's about ready enough to take off. He's about ready to take off. I'm going, hmm, that's fun. And I was on this deep base. And it was about 70 degrees. And suddenly it went to knee-deep snow on granite rock. And I was starting to slip. And I couldn't put anything in. I couldn't see anything. I was thinking, I was about ready to take this big screamer. I had these 500-foot long ropes that I was using and I was just running them out. So I was thinking in a comic way, that's funny, the first flight down at base camp and I'm about ready to take the first flight here. <laughs> what a coincidence, you know? <laughs> and, and then I look over to my right and I see this old fix line from this one Canadian team that was there the year season before. So I'm trying to traverse over it because I have a Joomer and I'll clip it mm-hmm. and finally have some, you know, stability. Because I had nothing. I couldn't put anything in. And all of a sudden, I'm cursing over, just really barely staying there. I'm going to, any little jump or move, and I'm going to take off for about 800 feet, <laughs> screaming. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, I hear, oh, God, he crashed, he crashed. Oh, no. And I'm like, ah, ah. <laughs> so I compose myself, and I get over to the rope, and I 
quick pull out my Jumar, I clip the rope and tug on it. It looks good. Pull off my pack and I call down on the radio and go, uh, who is he? And they go, it was Stevie. I'm just going, oh, no. All mm. right. It's, how is he? You know, and they go, it's okay. This is my best friend, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going, uh, all right. No, no, he's okay. He's banged up a bit, but he's okay. So the next thing I know, go down, we're at base, our camp one, and Stevie comes running up and he's going, Craig, Craig, these guys don't want to let me fly again. Tell, tell them that I'm okay. I, I was using Dan's harness. I didn't click into it right. And mm. I didn't have my CG right. But I mm. know what to do now. I go, are you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you know how it is. We've, we've screwed up and figured it out and then went back and did it right. And I go, yeah, 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 that's right. So they, they came running up right afterwards. They go, Stevie can't fly. I was the lead climber on the trip, right? Mm-hmm. And Stevie and I put the thing together. He just told me what happened. He said he's using Dan's harness. He clipped it wrong. He never used it before, and he knows what to do now. So mm-hmm. he says he's good. He's going to fly. You can't let your best friend commit suicide. We're not going to sit back and watch this. I go, well, you know what? Well, first thing we did was when we set this trip up is we bought you round-trip tickets, and you can leave anytime you want. You don't have to stay <laughs> here. I'll take Stevie up. As a matter of fact, you're mm-hmm. in my way. So you mm-hmm. can just go and take off, and I'll Stevie and I will deal with this. We have some shirts to help us drag these things up there. Uh, you can go. And they just looked at me and they looked at Stevie. He goes, you guys are crazy. You're crazy. I don't even know why we came with somebody like you. And I just like, well, that's fine. You know, you can think what you want. But mm. I guarantee you, if he said it's right, he'll figure it out. It's He's, he's not suicidal. We've, mm-hmm. been, we've been going through these things our entire life. So I get Stevie up to about 24. 2,000 feet, and he was just going to take a, a regular flight down to our camp one at 20,000. A, a sleigh ride is what they call it. And the other guys were going to go up to the west top of the West Ridge and 24,000 feet and try to t- soar to the summit, touch the summit, and then come back down. And so they didn't want to be around when he flew, so I took him up, and then I came back down to you know, deal with what happened if he crashed. And he took off with skis, never flew with skis before. Perfect flight. Mm-hmm. Landed right in front of me as softly as you could ever imagine someone landing. Mm-hmm. And these people were sitting back there in shock. And I and I didn't look at him and say, see, I told you so, or everything is okay. I just went, your turn. <laughs> 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 I love that attitude. The statement that you made earlier, I was made for this stuff. Like, I really want to unpack that. So we're going to have to schedule a part two. At yeah, least. I mean, by what you just what, what you just heard is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. No one in their right mind would have continued at the level I, I went continued at if you weren't meant for that stuff. Everybody's meant for something. And I was obviously meant for doing those things. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings 
by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.